Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, we all knew it could happen, and now it has. Earlier this afternoon, I was advised of a new case in the South Auckland community. We have no current known link for the case discovered this afternoon. That is why Cabinet met this evening and made the decision that Auckland will need to move to Alert Level 3 for a period of seven days. People broke the rules. There is no doubt that a contributing factor to the issue we are now facing is that the guidelines and indeed the rules have not always been followed. And now, after a year of discipline and action and mucking in, a lot of people are mad. It turns out a year later, basically, if people don't self-isolate, don't do what they're supposed to do, then they get told that they're a naughty boy or girl, and that's about it, really. And there is, understandably, a desire for consequences and accountability. I think we do need to, to look at uh, you know, greater enforcement of those rules because when you know, one person or a group of people in the team of five million uh, break the rules, it puts uh, the rest of the five million at risk. But what are we hoping to achieve by stringing up a fellow human who is, like all of us, fallible? When do you move from the carrot to the stick? And with tempers fraying and frustration building, what sorts of messages should we be sending out from the very top? We do not ask of you any more than we think is necessary to keep you and your loved ones safe. Please follow the rules. The past week or so is a bit of a hodgepodge, but the real starting point was when Auckland went into level three lockdown on February the 14th, the Valentine's Day cluster. That cluster, originally of three people in a single household, involved someone who went to Papatoetoe High School. From there, two other households have had family members who've also tested positive. And one thing we're pretty certain of is that, whether through ignorance or carelessness or poor communication from the top, some people broke the rules. Here is newsroom.co.nz political editor Joe Moyer. So we've got this whole sort of timeline of events, and I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but where we've kind of landed in the last kind of week where the pressure has started to really go on the government is around one particular case, Case Al, who most people will know as the KFC worker. Now, that's a sibling of one of the Papatoetoe High School students. So the sort of debate around all of this is, um, you know, at the time that that person went to work on February the 22nd, how much information they had as someone who was a casual contact. So that's where the pressure has come on around um, the messaging from the government, what was received. I guess whether also you can make assumptions about how much information people are actually taking on board. We know that everyone kind of consumes news and, and information in different ways and you know what sort of platforms are being used and whether that general messaging is actually still being consistent enough or, or perhaps whether health officials and the government have got complacent in terms of getting that messaging out because they just assume now that everyone kind of gets it. What do we actually know about you know which cases broke the rules what they actually did, how much information they kind of had and whether they kind of realised that they were breaking the rules. What's the story there? Yeah, so it's a bit of a minefield, and if you kind of tuned into every press conference there'd been, you'd probably be as confused as um, some of us journalists yeah. are, I imagine. But um, you've got, so you've, you've kind of got two cases going on here. You've got um, the guy who got 
a COVID test and then went to the gym. Everyone sort of knows about that and there's kind of no debate about the fact that, you know, that's not what you do. If, you, if you've gone to get a COVID test because you've got symptoms, you don't then go somewhere where a whole bunch of people are. So we can park that one as, yes, definitely broke the rules as such, but that kind of isn't up for debate. So it's Case Al, the KFC worker, where the microscope has really come on because Case Al has argued ever since um, the Prime Minister came out quite publicly um, and said, you know, the full weight of the nation's judgment would be on this person for, you know, going to work quite a few days after the outbreak at Papatoitoi High School, bearing in mind, you know, they're a sibling of one of the students. So the microscope is on, you know, what information that person actually had. And, you know, if you go back to Sunday last week, you had the Prime Minister come out and kind of say... COVID kills people. We must never lose sight of the reason we take these measures. It is to save our people's lives and to save their livelihoods. She got really strong in her messaging about the fact... It was a real... I guess you'd say it was a complete change in tone. It was a real switch to a serious tone Mm. around how deadly this virus is, you know, as if it was kind of needed to remind people. Um, So that was the Sunday, and then the Monday we got that sort of... um, really honing in on sort of an individual and kind of, um, you know, putting... I guess a lot of the the weight and responsibility um, onto the KFC worker and and the decisions that they made. With the full understanding of human fallibility, it is not appropriate and it is not okay for members of the team of 5 million to let the rest of us down. Now, the KFC worker stands by the fact that they didn't receive any information that said that they needed to stay home and self-isolate. And Mark Dowder, actually from the newsroom, has done a really good timeline of all of this. And then when you kind of go day by day and you go and look at all of the different avenues for information, whether it be the Unite Against COVID website or the Ministry of Health website or the press conferences, whatever you you know choose to look at, there is quite conflicting information. Some of it doesn't get updated. Um, some of it gets updated, but sort of after the fact. Um, there was an update of information that the KFC workers should have been self-isolating, but that happened on the day that they went to work. Mm-hmm. So you could argue, well, would they have received that in time? Um, the government's also kind of really pushed the point that there was something like, you know, 15 attempts to get hold of this person through text and phone call and letters were sent out. But this is a situation where the, the workers' parents don't speak English and, you know, possibly text messages, you know, wouldn't have been understood and wouldn't have been passed on. Mm. So there's a lot of factors that have come into play here and, you know, it comes down to kind of... Not necessarily who you believe, but whether you think that the KFC worker had plausible deniability. And actually, based on sort of the timeline that that Mark put together, you know, his conclusion and and mine is that actually the KFC worker did have plausible deniability. So therefore, you need to look at what systems the government has in place and where the breakdown of communication has happened that this person thought that it was okay for them to to go to work and not stay home and self-isolate. It's sort of one of those situations, isn't it, where, you know, information is only really useful insofar as it can be easily understood by people. 
Yeah, and you've heard um, Chris Hipkins and Ashley Bloomfield and the Prime Minister this week talk about the fact that they use multiple platforms. I mean, we've even had a conversation about TikTok and Tinder this week, as bizarre as that is. Um, And, you know, they've talked about the fact that it's uh, translated into multiple languages. But, you know, in saying that, I've had conversations with, um, you know, people who are very closely tied to uh, Pacific and Māori communities within South Auckland. And they make the case that actually there's not a lot of information in the right places because if you are relying on something like um, Fanaura providers in South Auckland to get the message out, well, actually, not all Māori families use Fanaura, mm. so that's not necessarily a sort of a definite outreach program. So, you know, the, I think it's fair to say that they need to look again at, at how they are reaching people and whether it's good enough. But I would still come back to the point earlier that. It's, it's more about having up-to-date information across all mediums because when you have got conflicting information on different websites or Facebook or whatever it might be, then, you know, wh- which one is a person who is genuinely trying to work out whether they're meant to be self-isolating or not going to choose to read or listen to? And this sort of cuts to the core of the issue. New Zealand's communication strategy around COVID-19 has been globally lauded for its clarity and its directness. But as time goes on, things become more complicated. And now we're in a situation where we're dealing with close contacts and casual contacts and casual plus contacts, and there's a whole new vernacular growing day on day. Clearly, in some instances, the message is getting muddled. Dr. Edward Elder is an expert in strategic political communication and a teaching fellow at the University of Auckland. I asked him for his thoughts on the government's wider comm strategy over the past year. The communication has been quite campaign-oriented, government communication and social marketing. And what I mean by that is that more broadly, the communication, let's say, was uh, consistently framed and filtered through quite a consistent and palatable message or quite consistent and palatable themes that the leaders, both political and non-political, were able to emphasize. And we saw this with these, you know, let's say slogans like the team of five million and you know, unite against COVID-19, for example, that all fit under that the general theme of unity, right? So even down to the uh, more subtle things like the the language cues that we use, the emphasis on using terms like we and us and our together, these sorts of things in order to sort of, even if it may be more implicit, but it, it suggests that sort of inclusivity rather than saying, I am telling you to do this or my government will do X mm. uh, in a way that sort of would have maybe created more of a distance between the public and those who are, well, for lack of a better term, giving the instructions. That's sort of the positive side of things is it was palatable, it was sort of consistent, and it did create this sort of sense of unity so that it allowed the government to use soft power to get the public to do what they wanted, basically. But at the same time, it was very much of an emphasis on almost like a one-size-fits-all style of message, and I'm not the only person who sort of said this in the public forum. But this saw sort of, you know, the, the blanket social marketing campaign where you couldn't, like click on a YouTube video or, or do anything basically without seeing the sort of, you know, the yellow and white banners with the COVID-19 logo on it. And this made sense, especially in the beginning when there was a lot more uncertainty about what was going on and people were maybe looking more for 
uh, strong leadership and, and having that sort of one size fits all message that was quite simple and and came from one source or like one or two sources, you know, the Prime Minister, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, that sort of made sense. Whether that's still the case is more debatable. Mm. What we're really talking about here is sort of, it's behaviour manipulation really, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. getting people mm-hmm. to behave the way that you want them to behave. There is, is a form of manipulation in there, but I don't, using that sort of term sort of suggests there's a negativity to it, mm. which is not necessarily the case. It depends on the way you want to look at it. And I think this comes down to also thinking about, I mentioned the term soft power rather than, you know, being, you know, what we've seen in other countries where you have, are seeing a lot more sort of uh, forceful rhetoric, so to speak, a lot more use of hard power and the emphasis on the use of hard power in order to persuade people to do what you want. When you're talking soft power versus hard power, so you're talking about soft power being the idea of you know making people want to do the right thing versus the hard power of making people scared of the consequences of doing the wrong thing. Exactly. So what I mean by soft power is basically emphasizing the reward for doing what the government is asking you to do. If we you know, stay in isolation for X period of time, we will be able to live a relatively normal life rather than the hard power, which would be, for example, saying, if you don't do what we ask you to do, we will fine you. Do you think that there is a different feel now, more of a flavour of uh, anger and maybe a desire for culpability? Yes. So I think to to go back to your flavor analogy, the way I would sort of describe the, especially the, the comms over the last you know week or so, just under a week, um, is that it's almost like putting tomato sauce on top of ice cream. <laughs> in that I mentioned that there was this emphasis on empathy and, and, and sort of understanding and compassion to go along with a sense of unity. But then when you see, for example, the prime minister seeming a bit more, let's say, angry, that almost contradicts what we've been seeing as a a sort of overarching theme over the past year plus. When it comes to the public, yes, you are starting to see a lot more anger as well. But that is understandable. I'm not a psychologist, but to use an analogy, it's like we've just been had our head shoved underwater. And then we've come back out for a short breath, and then we've had our, our head shoved back underwater, if you're in Auckland especially. Um, so in that sense, that creates you know a lot more a heightened sense of whatever you're feeling. In this case, it will be anger, probably also brought on by the fact that we are sort of a year into this. And there is sort of an, an end in sight, but we're still you know having to deal with these same sorts of consequences – I guess we're kind of getting into carrot versus stick territory, you know, like people here have broken the rules, a lot of people are angry about it, a lot of people are calling for punishment, whether that takes the form of fines or whatever. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? I understand the the feeling of anger that people have and why the, the, the response would be to punish these people. If you'd asked me on Monday, I've been thinking about this all week, like a lot of people have, as I've been taking my dogs for a walk. <laughs> my initial sort of response would be the same as Phil Goff, which, you know, the mayor of Auckland, which is something along the lines of... It's not a case of going out there and, um, and, and naming and shaming. That really drives people underground. We've got to work with people, but we've also got to keep reinforcing that message. And I still think that's probably true. The one fear that I do have, especially now that we are sort of a year into this, 
is if people see that some people aren't following the rules and that there are no consequences for that, does there come a point where people's tolerance for that gets to the point where they just say, well, if they're not going to follow the rules, neither am I? I guess the you know the point that the Prime Minister might make if she were in the room is the people who broke the rules here have millions of people in New Zealand feeling absolutely fuming at them and they know that we're really, really grumpy at them and maybe that social backlash is sufficient. Well, I think the Prime Minister has actually mentioned that in, you know, in her communication around the fact that you know, these people do now see the consequences of their actions, so to speak, and they are feeling the weight of the nation. That said, there is also the argument that you could make, well, it's too late now. The, 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 the consequences are sort of affecting them, but the, let's say the next person in, in the queue may not feel those same, that same pressure until the, you know, they cause a lockdown, so to speak. So there is also the fact that the, the deterrence comes after the, you know, the major you know, things we're trying to avoid have already taken place. New Zealand's comm strategy you know, has been widely praised around the world over the past year. Do you think it is entering different territory now, though? And I'm going to use the word overcomplicated. Yeah, so I think this comes back to that analogy I used before about the, the tomato sauce on top of the ice cream. There, there is a very, obviously, when it comes to that sort of more sort of detailed communication that you need to provide to a particular group of people who need to, for example, self-isolate, you know, there is going to need to be more more detail there than there is when you're just talking to the whole country about uniting against COVID-19. That said, the government, as is common for governments, went too far in the other direction and probably provided too much detail. That too much detail is something Joe Moyer picked up on as well. I think there is still effective PR going on there, but it's actually the next level where it's become muddled and it's when we actually do have a case in the community like we've seen you know, a couple of in the, the last few weeks which has led to two lockdowns, uh, level three lockdowns in Auckland. It's that messaging of you know, do you go and get a test? Do you have to self-isolate? Can you go to work? It's that kind of next tier where people are going, I don't actually know what I'm meant to be doing at this point. Mm. Um, so I think there is, I think it's both. I, there is still good, strong messaging there. Perhaps it's not um, being sort of shoved at us enough. Um, perhaps they could pick that up a bit. But um, I would argue that actually where the communication is starting to fall away is actually directly with people who become, through no fault of their own, um, you know, these casual, casual plus type contacts. Mm. And, you know, we've had a change of categories as well. So there's, you know, new sort of subcategories of people as well. That all, that all just adds to the confusion factor, really. Do you think, to an extent, you know, partially, that, that can kind of... An element of the fault there maybe lies with us and um, and perhaps more so with, with you as a journalist, you know, in the gallery in that when these, you know, the media analyses the decisions that the government and the authorities make so closely and nitpick and, and point out the smallest sort of technicalities that could introduce confusion and therefore new categories have to be introduced to, to explain things away. And all of a sudden, you know, we're kind of in an information soup kind of situation where there are dozens of different categories and, and you know, it's, it's more difficult to get a broad message out when everything is being hyper-analysed. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I would push back on that in the sense that um, that's probably not surprising. <laughs> I'd push back on that. Um, but I would in the sense that actually, um, in the same way that, you know, the opposition here at Parliament has a job to do, the media has a job to do. And, you know, we get a better system because people go and analyse and, you know, look at where the problems are. Uh, speak to people who are actually dealing with the system. You know, you look at the KFC worker situation and, you know, they went to media and said, I did not receive any information that suggested that I needed to stay home from work. Well, I mean, people can argue whether that is true or not and, you know, whether they have been living under a rock because they hadn't seen any of the news or whatever. But... At the end of the day, like you, you've got to have systems in place where everybody is being reached, and if they're not, which has been highlighted in the last week or so, then it's on health officials and the government to make the system better. And I think everyone, I think the team of five million, benefits from the best system that we can possibly have. I also think potentially one of the mistakes that they made was not linking. For example, the way that they talk to people about individual isolation with the way that they talk about to the whole country about isolation. So just as an example, you know, when you've got these labels around, for example, who who is a casual plus contact and who's a casual contact and who's, you know, um, a close contact and these sorts of things, I would like to know, I would have questions as to why they didn't use the same type of system that they used for the country as a whole, level one, level two, level three, something that is a, quite palatable and easy to understand, such as numbers. The reason why you need these sort of these overarching labels is so that people, under, people understand what is within them. So if, if you just provide the detail without having some sort of overarching palatable theme, then it's a lot less, again, palatable, basically. Mm. And I think that's the issue that they're facing here, is that there's all this detail that they need, they're providing to people without something that sort of people can easily understand. It says, ah, I understand that under you know, level three, I can do X and Y, and under level one, I can do X and Y. But, and it's just, it isn't quite as easy to understand when you don't have that sort of overarching label that you can place on it that is easily consumable and makes sense to people. Do any examples spring to mind of the way our comms at this stage could be improved? Or is it sort of about kind of keeping on the principles that we already have and and sort of dragging ourselves over the finish line here? So I think this comes back to what I said before about that one-size-fits-all strategy working in the beginning, but maybe not so much now. And Mm. I think there is loads of evidence that suggests, and this comes from like election campaigns as, as well, so... Uh, it sort of works more universally that people are more likely to uh, trust a message if it comes from a someone they know, but if not that, someone who they can identify with, someone who uh, you know looks like them, or more importantly, can speak to them through the subtle cues that that resonate with them. So in the last few days, there's been quite a lot of focus on, for example, you know, the language barrier. You know, people who where English isn't their first language. Mm. It, that is certainly the case, and we can't you know, ignore that. But it's even thinking a bit deeper than that about just the types of language that resonate with people so that people can connect with it on a, an emotional level. And I think what we've seen so far is that where there has been sort of efforts to translate the communication, it has been, you know, basically, I'm oversimplifying this, but 
putting the communication or the message through Google Translate and then giving it to them. Mm. And it needs to be a bit more sophisticated than that, where they actually use the type of communication uh, that resonates with these people, that allows them to create a sort of more of an emotional connection to uh, the communicator and therefore the, the message being communicated. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Joe Moyer and Dr. Edward Elder. Matewa. <laughs>